Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Community Church, a family of grace on mission with Jesus to glorify God. We hope that the following message will help you as you grow closer in your walk with Jesus. We're continuing our series called Origin Story, where we've been talking about uh, Genesis chapters 1 through 12 today by asking the question, uh, is science and the Bible, are they friends or are they foes? Can we reconcile the claims of Scripture with the claims of modern science? Uh, In 1980, the person on the screen there, Carl Sagan, published what became uh, the most popular book at the time on science in the history of the world, uh, published in English. And it was timed to be released uh, right around when this television series of the same title, Cosmos, came out. Uh, It was a wildly popular television series. I'm sure many of you in this room remember uh, when PBS released that. And Carl Sagan, being a scientist... He wanted to inform the public on some of the uh, amazing discoveries that had been made and the vastness of our universe, and, and certainly he wanted to educate people. But Carl Sagan had another agenda as well. Uh, he was a hardcore agnostic, and he believed that there were laws that governed the universe that science really couldn't explain, but he completely rejected the idea that there was a personal God who had created the world and who was anyway involved with the world. In fact, um, Carl Sagan viewed Christianity and other monotheistic religions to be mere superstition, things to be done away with. One of his friends, uh, another scientist named Richard Lewinton, wrote a book review in the New York Times on one of Carl Sagan's books, and he described uh, Carl Sagan's motivation this way. He said, Carl Sagan wanted people to reject irrational and supernatural explanations of the world and to accept science as the only begetter of truth. And so today we're going to ask the question, is he right? Is Carl Sagan right that there's this gulf between the Bible and science and never the two shall meet? Science gives us uh, a definition of reality and the Bible merely gives us opinions and superstitions. I think you probably know where I'm going to lean in that conversation, but that's what we're going to talk about uh, together today. Um, Last week, we covered uh, the the original audience of Genesis, and we talked about how um, as Israel was getting ready to go into the promised land, the book of Genesis served for them as a powerful reminder that their God was the God of promise and of power, that God had promised them the promised land that he was going to deliver to them, and that this God of the promise was the same God who had created the universe, this God of immense power. Today, we're going to begin a four-week conversation on how science and the Bible relate to each other and how we should understand the claims of Genesis in light of modern science. Then after that, we're going to begin to talk about uh, the origin of evil and why bad things happen and uh, the doctrine of original sin. We're going to talk about the promise of redemption in Jesus all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at Noah's flood and the Tower of Babel and the calling of Abraham. And really, we're going to talk talk about a lot of the questions that Christians and and non-Christians have. And this is a great opportunity. If you have friends who you think might be interested, invite them to church. I think we're going to have a really powerful conversation over the next 10 to 11 weeks as we talk about Genesis chapters 1 through 11. But today's question is, can the Bible and science be friends? Uh, are they friends or foes? Uh, can they relate to each other? Now, obviously, Carl Sagan had his doubts. Uh, when you claim that an entire uh, 
system of belief is simply superstition, that science is the only uh, true uh, begetter of, of knowledge, uh, you're not going to accept that God's word is telling you accurate things about the nature uh, of the world and, and about science. And really the conflict in this whole discussion goes all the way back to Genesis chapter one, verses one and two. So if you have a Bible with you, go all the way back to the very beginning to chapter one. It's where we started last week. Uh, last week we got through verse one. This week we'll get through verse two. We'll pick up the pace a little bit in the weeks to come. Uh, but we're going to read Genesis chapter one, verses one and two. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The very beginning of the Bible does not start with creation. It starts with God. And it starts with God as separate from creation and the author of creation. You know, what's interesting is if you were to give Genesis chapter one, verses one and two, if you were to give that to Carl Sagan and ask him, paraphrase this in in a way that you would agree with, I think it might sound a little something like this. I think it might sound like in the beginning were the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. I think somebody like Carl Sagan would be able to agree, not that that's a totally accurate depiction of the universe right after the Big Bang or anything like that, but I think that scientists like him and contemporary atheists like Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris, I think they would agree with the idea that in the beginning was the earth and that it was uh, relatively without shape. Without form and void literally means that it was without form and without life. It was just un directed stuff in the beginning. And and while that might not be a technically accurate way that a scientist would describe it, it it, it sort of matches up with what they think was at the beginning of the universe. Now, obviously the big point of conflict here is the involvement of God, that in the beginning, God is the one who created the heavens and the earth, that his spirit was the one that was hovering over this formless and lifeless material. And he is the one who gives it shape. And so atheists like Uh, Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris or agnostics like Carl Sagan believe that the Bible and science are foes. But what I want to talk about today is the fact that science and the Bible are friends, not foes. Science and the Bible are friends, not foes. I think in scripture and in the history of the church, we find this to to be true. And it's an important thing for the church to understand. Science and the Bible are friends, not foes. And today is not the day when we're going to get into all the ways that science and the Bible might reconcile with each other and how science affirms the Bible, the Bible affirms science. We're going to talk about that a lot next week. We're going to talk about the purpose of creation uh, two weeks after that. But today I just simply want to talk about why it's important for the church to understand that the Bible and science are friends, not foes. And I don't think that this is just an important topic for the church. In fact, the first point of our message today is that a friendly relationship between science and the Bible is a life and death issue for the church and culture. A friendly relationship between science and the Bible is a life and death issue for the church and culture. Uh, The Barna Group, which is a large research organization that studies trends in culture and in Christianity, they came out with a study recently on millennials and the Generation Z. Now, you've heard a lot about millennials probably in the last five years. Almost all millennials are now adults, okay? Uh, I don't know if that encourages you or scares you. I'm just barely out of the millennial rage. I have a lot of friends that are millennials. I think they're they're a, a pretty awesome generation. 
generation. Um, but now we're hearing about Generation Z. And, and Barna decided to talk about some trends that are happening that they're noticing in the, in the millennials who are now adults and in Generation Z who are now mostly teenagers. And what they found in terms of their belief system is that 7% of all millennials are atheists. But what you need to look at is the Generation Z, the the generation that's coming up behind them that are now reaching their teenage years. In Generation Z, 13% of Generation Z consider themselves to be atheists. That is a almost 100% increase. The number of atheists in these generations has almost doubled. 24% of Generation Z of of the current teenagers think that science disagrees with the Bible and science is right and the Bible is wrong. And so they're not even going to have a conversation about Christianity because they already believe that the science has settled the matter. The Bible is completely a fiction. This one is the most troubling. Basically, half of teens today think that the church is anti-science. Half of teenagers today believe that the church is anti-science. Now, here's why that's important. In our culture today, when you hear someone say, scientists say, what they are saying is, this is how reality is. These are the facts about the world. And almost half of teenagers today believe that the truth is, that the church is anti-rational, that we are not willing to listen to facts. Over one quarter of all teens today do not think that the church is a safe place to express their doubts. Now, I want you to think about the implications for the church for just a moment. Let's, let's start on our home turf, right? Um, why is that important? Well, if you're a parent and you have a teenager, and let's say your teenager falls into the 50-50 split of teens who think that the church is anti-science. They, they come to church every week and they think, you know, uh, the, the pastor, the people here, they're not willing to listen to the truth of what science has to say. And let's say that they also fall into the 27% who do not think that the church is a safe place to express their doubts. Let me tell you what's going to happen. They're going to keep their suspicions to themselves. They're going to go on YouTube. They're going to read articles that dis disprove Christianity, atheists who are trying to show that the Bible is full of errors. They're not going to talk about it because they're afraid they'll be ridiculed or run out of the church. And then one day they're going to come to you as their parents and they're going to say, I've left Christianity. I do not believe in this God and it will be too late. Now, I'm not saying that God can't redeem somebody who's left the faith. I'm not saying that they can't come back. But statistically speaking, the church usually does not get a second chance with that person because they feel like they weren't in a place where they could talk about their doubts. They feel like the fact is settled. This is a life and death issue for the church. We cannot afford to be perceived in culture as being anti-rational or anti-science. Now, let me explain what I'm not saying, okay? I'm not saying that as Christians that we need to take a survey every couple of years and change our beliefs about God based on culture. That's not what I'm saying. We believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. We believe that he's Lord. We believe that God's word is wholly true and without error. And and it gives us instruction for all of life and practice. That's not the issue here. The issue is the perception that is out there that believing in those things is somehow anti-reality or anti-science. We need to wrestle with this as a church. It's not just a life and death issue for the church, by the way. It's also a life and death issue for the culture. There was a recent article that was published in the Huffington Post, and it was written by an atheist. So this is important. This was not a religious hit piece on atheism. This article in the Huffington Post was written by an atheist. And the title of the article was, Atheism Has a Suicide Problem. 
And in the article, the atheist author noted a study from the American Journal of Psychology where they had noticed a serious statistical increase in the rate of suicide for those who claimed atheism as their belief system compared to all other belief systems. I don't think it's a coincidence that at the same time that the American Journal of Psychology noticed a, a, an uptick in the suicide rate of people who claim atheism as their belief system, Time Magazine also reported that among teenagers, there's a 37% increase in reported mental health problems. Over double, the atheism rate in teenagers has more than doubled. The suicide rate for those who are atheists is markedly higher than those who have beliefs in a, in a purposeful creation and meaning in God. Those teenagers who are turning to atheism are having coping issues and they don't know where to turn. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that if you're here today and you're an atheist or you're considering atheism that you're suicidal. In fact, of people who succumb to, to suicide, it's found that about 90% of them have serious mental health issues. So I, I'm not saying that if you believe in atheism, you're automatically suicidal. What I am saying is that we live in an incredibly complex society. And as our society gets more and more complex, when we simultaneously remove from our society foundational definitions of meaning and morality and destiny and origin, that there is going to be a connection between people's level of despair and where they turn when they hit times of crisis in their life and their belief system. And this article is clear that those who had subscribed to atheism, when they got to that point in their life, they had nowhere to turn. It's interesting that the author of the article tried his best to not just make this a observation of a trend in culture, but he tried to reach out to atheists who might be considering suicide. And he encouraged these people to seek help but he also told them to remember that they were a long, they were part of a long chain of human progress and that they should value their life because generations who would come after them would benefit from their productive participation in society. Now, I have personally not been at a point in my life where I was suicidal, so I, I can't comment on a person's mental state there, but I doubt that when a person gets there, the thing that keeps them from crossing the line is the fact that when they die and become worm food and cease to exist, some future generation that they'll never meet will benefit from them persevering through their struggle. I think when a person gets to that point and they're considering suicide, they're far more likely to think about what Carl Sagan was saying, that they are as a speck of dust compared to the earth, as the earth is a speck of dust compared to the galaxy, as our galaxy is a speck of dust compared to all the galaxies, and they are a speck of dust on a speck of dust in a speck of dust floating on an ocean of meaninglessness. That is what atheism offers these people. The Bible actually has an entire book <laughs> that is written to address this issue. It's called the book of Ecclesiastes. If you turn over there, it's about uh, halfway through the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. In Ecclesiastes chapter two, this whole issue of meaning and, and destiny and why it's important to believe that there's a creator God who created us for a purpose is laid out by this guy, King Solomon. And what he's talking about in chapter two in verses 12 through 17 is where you come to in your life when you remove a creator, when, when you remove any kind of purposeful creation and any kind of meaningful destiny and eternity, this is what Solomon has to say about this. Starting in chapter two, verse 12, he says, I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly 
For what can the man do who comes after the king? So he's thinking about the person when he dies who's going to replace him as the king. And he says, that person is only going to do what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So Solomon says, so then I thought, well, but there's meaning to being wise in life because everybody knows that a wise person, his life goes better for him than than a foolish person. But then he says, and yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. They all die. Then I said to my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. So Solomon is saying, there's, there's benefit in wisdom in this life. But if when I die, I just go into the ground and become worm food and I have no eternal destiny. And the next person after me is going to repeat this meaningless cycle. Shouldn't I just squeeze as much pleasure out of life as I can right now? I mean, what was the point of all that wisdom? If my end is the same as everyone's end in 200, 300 years from now, it's not even going to matter. He says, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. A friendly relationship between science and the Bible is a life and death issue for the church and for the culture. If you're here and you're a young person today, you need to understand that believing in God, believing in a creator is not anti-science. It is not anti-rational. And next week we're going to begin to unpack all the reasons why that's true. If you're here today and you're considering the claims of science, that science can define for you your origin and your meaning and morality and your destiny, you need to understand science cannot give you the answers to those questions. Science cannot provide meaning to life. It cannot tell you what your morals are. It cannot provide you with a destiny. And yet the fact remains that a friendly relationship between science and the Bible is a life and death issue for the church and for culture. And so we have to ask the question, how can this happen? How can we have a friendly relationship between the Bible and science? And so the next point I want to make is that a friendly relationship between science and the Bible requires good fences around both. A friendly relationship between science and the Bible requires good fences around both. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, good fences make good neighbors? Anybody heard that before? It's, it's true. I, I love my fence. I also love my neighbors, but I like keeping them out of my yard and having my own space, right? And one of the ways that we accomplish uh, a, a friendship between the Bible and science is by having good fences uh, around both. You know, we're often guilty of something called um, chronological snobbery. Uh, this is the idea that because we live, obviously, in the most current time in history, that somehow uh, every question is a new question. Every issue has never been thought of before. We must automatically have the best answers to these things. Um, and, and that's simply not true. Science is not a new field of study. <laughs> it may be moving faster than it ever has, but science is an ancient discipline. And this question about whether or not the Bible and science can be friends is not a new question. It's been around for a long time. In fact, one of the uh, most important church fathers, a, a man named Augustine, he wrote a commentary on the book of Genesis. And he wrestled with, 
you know, at his time, he lived in 350 AD, so we're talking almost 1,700 years ago. And at his time, science was very rudimentary. But even at that time, he was wrestling with how, what is the relationship between science and the Bible? And this is what uh, Augustine said. He said, Scripture's not concerned with the form and shape of the heavens. The Holy Spirit did not wish to teach men things of no relevance to their salvation. And so Augustine's basic conclusion was the scripture is not trying to give us technical details about the inner workings of nature. Scripture is focused on salvation and how we can uh, come to know God. Now, here's the thing. I don't 100% with, agree with Augustine's conclusion there, but it's important to understand that people were wrestling with this question a long time ago. The church was dealing with how to relate with science for a long time. One of the reasons why I don't fully agree with Augustine's statement is that the Bible actually does make statements about historical people and places, and it does make comments about nature and and how things work. And I think it's really problematic as Christians to claim that the Bible is revealed from God, it's, it's wholly true, and then also say, but in the parts where we can know that it's wrong because of modern science, it doesn't really matter. I think that's problematic. And we'll, we'll talk about that in future weeks. But I think the basic principle that Augustine lays down here is really helpful. We need to understand the main purpose of the Bible and, and appreciate the Bible for what it is trying to offer. And we need to understand the main purpose of science and understand what science is trying to do. And so I want to suggest two fences that we could accept that would allow the Bible and science to be friends and, and to help us realize that this idea that science disproves the Bible or that Bible disproves science uh, isn't necessarily all that it's uh, worked up to be. The first fence has to do with science. So I, I know for a fact that there are scientists in this room. So I'm asking you guys to, to bear with me here. Please don't throw any microscopes at me or whatever weapon of choice you may have brought with you. Uh, the first fence has to do with science. Science must accept that it is not qualified to speak of ultimate origins or matters of morality, meaning, and destiny. Scientists have to accept that physical observations about how things are or mathematical theories that can be proven out in in a laboratory to be true, that that does not make them qualified to talk about the origin of all things or to talk about meaning in life or morality or human destiny. And I'm here to tell you, scientists do this a lot. Scientists, for example, will look at the honeybee and they'll notice that in hives of honeybees, there is social cooperation that goes on. There's a form of altruism with honeybees where actually some honeybees, many of them will die for the benefit of the hive. And so there are many scientists who will observe the social cooperation of the honeybee and they will take that observation and they will say, aha, we know where morality came from. Morality came from some millions of years ago, some development of social cooperation, of, uh, of cooperative altruism, and that's what morality is about. And they'll, they'll go from an observation of what is, which is honeybees cooperating in a hive, And they will claim that science now can tell you how you ought to behave. You can't do that. Science is not able to move from their physical observations and conclusions into the non-physical world of origin, of meaning, of morality, and destiny. And so scientists have to take on a form of humility and focus on what science is good at. 
But Christians also have to be willing to put up good fences around the Bible. Now, that's a very problematic thing to say. I'm going to admit that. Some of you are probably going, what do you say in the next five minutes? It's going to determine whether I come back to this place. Because, you know, you could take that too far and, and somehow talk about limiting the Bible. We're not talking about limiting the Bible. We're not talking about uh, science being an authority over the Bible. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that as Christians, we need to understand that the original intent of the authors of the Bible, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, was not to give ancient people modern technical descriptions of how the world works. That just wasn't in their thinking. You know, that's why I spent all of the message last week talking about the original audience of the book of Genesis. You have these Israelites who've come out of Egypt and they're being asked to go up against a mighty and wicked nation called the Canaanites. And they're afraid and their parents have been faithless. And now they are the generation that is to be obedient And so Moses presents them a beautiful picture of the God of power and promise. He reminds them where their roots are. He reminds them of their origin. And I think that had, that was much more relevant to where they were at than questions about Big Bang cosmology or design in the universe or how old, uh, how old the universe is. And so we need to be able to appreciate science for what science offers, and we need to be able to appreciate the Bible for what the Bible offers. Another way to talk about this is to talk about the fact that God has given us two books of revelation. He's given us a book of special revelation, which is the Holy Scripture, and he's given us a book of natural revelation in nature. And this is a difficult thing for Christians to think about. But but I want you to think about this. If we're willing to appreciate the Bible for what the Bible says, and we're willing to appreciate nature for the observations we could get from nature, we would be well on our way to finding friendship between Bible and science. You know, I really wish I could just stop there and go, well, that settles it, right? (laughs) I mean, it's just that easy. Let's appreciate the Bible for what the Bible does. Let's appreciate nature for for the observations of nature, and, and, and we, we, we could just be done. I don't know what we'll do for the next few weeks. Maybe we'll just all get together and have a potluck and, and talk about it. I wish it were that simple, but it's not. It's hard, and there's a reason why it's hard. Again, one of the reasons why this is so hard is because every time you turn around, the news is putting a scientist on TV who insists that their non-physical theories and observations are scientific, and so Christians wrestle with that. Because scientists will get on TV and they will talk about their physical observations of things and they will talk about how those physical observations tell them with certainty about how things are in the non-physical world. And that's just not science. Scientists often begin with the assumption that there is no supernatural cause to anything. And so everything has to come back to that. And so if you're a Christian, that's really problematic because basically what your kids are being told is that there is no purpose, there is no meaning. You make up the rules as you go, and that has serious consequences. And so I understand why Christians are adversarial sometimes towards science. But it's also difficult because Christians often insist that the book of nature is not a revelation from God in any comparative way to the Bible. Christians often put nature on a much lower level as if somehow uh, nature doesn't reveal things about reality or that nature doesn't reveal things to us 
uh, about God. And, and this is problematic. I want to do a thought experiment um, to, to help you kind of get, uh, get where I'm going here, or at least understand where I'm coming from. I want to ask you two questions, and I don't want you to raise your hand or nod your head, uh, but just answer, answer to yourself the, the following two questions. I'll start with the first one. The first question is simply this. Is the Bible, God's revelation, true and totally trustworthy? Just answer that question in your mind. Is the Bible, God's revelation, true and totally trustworthy? Now, I would imagine in a room like this that most of you answered that question fairly quickly. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's God's revelation from the Holy Spirit. It's, it's without error. Uh, it, it informs all of life and practice. Yes, the Bible is true. Uh, it's trustworthy. Let me ask you a second question. Again, just kind of in your own head, answer this question. Is nature God's revelation true and totally trustworthy? Think about this for a moment. Is nature God's revelation true and totally trustworthy? Now, for most Christians, the answer to the first question is pretty easy. (laughs) But the second question is a lot harder to answer. Some of you may have just outright said no. Some of you may have wrestled with the answer. Why is that? Why is it such a struggle for us to believe that we can observe things in nature that tell us the truth about reality and maybe even reveal things to us about God? Uh, Turn back to the book of Psalms, chapter 19. I want to read a couple scriptures that talk about uh, the role of nature in terms of its trustworthiness and in terms of what it reveals to us about uh, the world and about God who created it. Psalm chapter 19, starting in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Listen to how that psalm begins. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Turn over to the New Testament, to the book of Romans, chapter 1, and listen to what the Apostle Paul has to say about natural revelation and about how the world works. Romans, chapter 1. And starting in verse 19. And the context here is that the Apostle Paul is explaining why people who reject the truth of God are without excuse. That they they have received revelation about God. And so speaking of these people who reject the truth of God, he says in verse 19, What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Listen to this. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that through nature, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived in his natural revelation, in his creation in nature. And... We've been doing this um, study in, in, in uh, the Equip Hour, which is at 9.20 in the morning. And we've spent 
we've been doing this for four weeks now. We're doing a parallel study on the book of Genesis because here is a point where I could get into a lot of, uh, you know, back and forth and here's, you know, how the fall affected things and here's, here's why some people uh, think that uh, natural revelation needs to be kind of looked at with suspicion and all that kind of stuff. But I think that for most people, they, they want to stay at the big picture level. So if you're somebody who's hearing this and you're like, man, I wish you'd go more into that. Man, you better explain yourself. Man, I want to hear more. What I would ask you to do is you can either join us in that Sunday school class because it's meeting every Sunday at 9.20 a.m., or you can go to our website. We're posting all the videos on the website, and you can hear more of, of the detail behind this. But here's, here's what I'm trying to, to get across. As Christians, there is a perception in the culture that we don't believe that we can actually know things about reality based on the physical sciences. That somehow we think that the Bible has secret knowledge about science that scientists are not able to figure out. And, and it's not the only thing that's contributing to this perception that the church is anti-science, but it's a, it's a big part of it. I want to illustrate this by showing you something from Twitter. I know uh, that's a little bit of a weird turn, but I want to show you a tweet um, that was on Twitter. And this was uh, a debate that a, a, a young earth creationist was having with an old earth creationist. And uh, I've blocked out the names to protect the innocent or the guilty or whatever. But this is what he said. He said, all gap theorists do is attempt to reconcile the scriptures with so-called science. And it's that little phrase at the end that I want to talk about for a minute, so-called uh, science. This person is upset that uh, Christians might believe that the, that the uh, universe is very old. And so he says that they're just using so-called science to uh, prop up their arguments. And I have to be honest, I hear this kind of language from a lot of Christians. So-called, well, scientists say, and we have to understand how this looks to the, to the outside world. We have to understand what, what young people in the culture think when they hear Christians dismissing science just out of hand. Now, here's the reason why this often happens. Um, most people are not really into studying all the ins and outs and details of science. So if a person gets on TV and tells you that your taxes should be increased by 10% every year because of global warming, you're probably going to be a little skeptical of where that information came from and, and, and where is the science. And because the science might be overly technical and honestly, no offense to scientists, but it's pretty boring a lot of the time, uh, we don't want to get into all that. So, you know, we might just we might just dismiss because we can't engage in the argument. We might just dismiss the science Altogether, I've seen that happen with evolution. I've seen that happen with, with, with climate science. But we have to understand when, when we use the term science, we have to understand how culture perceives that. What does culture think about when they think about science? Well, The Atlantic published an article recently called uh, The 50 Greatest Inventions Since the Invention of the Wheel. And they, they were just talking about how scientific research and, and technological advancements have improved society. And these are some of the things that they included in their list. They included things like the printing press, electricity, penicillin, computer chips, the internal combustion engine, the internet, refrigeration, airplanes, telephones, our favorite here in Southwest Florida, air conditioning, and anesthesia. Those were just 10 of the 50 advancements that they included in their list. And what their point was is that science and technology have greatly improved people's lives in terms of, of convenience and control. We have more convenience and control in our lives than the richest kings had just a few hundred years ago because of many of the advances of science and technology. 
So I want us to think for just a moment about our friend, Mr. So-called Science. I want you to imagine with me the circumstances surrounding this statement that he made. So our friend, Mr. So-called Science, he wakes up in his air-conditioned house and he uses electricity to cook his toast. Then he pulls out his smartphone with computer chip technology and he checks the weather. He gets into his internal combustion-powered car and he drives to the airport. He gets on an airplane and the plane rockets him 30,000 feet into the sky. And while he is sitting in his chair in the sky, he takes out his pocket-sized supercomputer and he starts tweeting about so-called science. His tweet is then sent from the airplane into space, which relays the message back down into my pocket and the pockets of millions of other people. But yeah, science whatever. That is how our culture perceives the church when we dismiss science out of hand. When we talk about science in an ignorant way, or we make rudimentary assumptions about what scientists think and believe, the culture rejects us. They don't want to hear anything else we have to say because they assume that we're not operating in reality. And I have to be so clear. I'm not saying that we should change the truth of God's word to accommodate culture. What I'm saying is that we need to be the kind of church where people can ask honest questions, where people can wrestle with their doubts, where people can have a different opinion about science and not be run out of the building because somebody was told that if you believe that the earth is ancient, that you're under some satanic deception. And there are Christians who believe that and will say that from the pulpits of their churches. It is a big problem for us to be perceived by culture as ignorant when it comes to the realm of science. And so as Christians, I think we need to be willing to put some healthy fences around our statements about the Bible when it relates to science. We need to have a little bit of humility and understand that not every statement about the world made in the Bible is meant to be a scientifically technical explanation of how things work. That's just not the reason that it was written. But as I said before, science has a role to play in this too. Science needs to build good fences around their conclusions and accept the fact that just because you can reduce things down to the level of DNA or molecules doesn't mean that you have answers when it comes to issues of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. And this is a big problem for science. I mentioned uh, that book review by Richard Lewinton, uh, who reviewed Carl Sagan's book. And Lewinton actually went on uh, in that same book review to talk about uh, the, the scientific project as he saw it and, and how he thought that scientists should approach their research. And this is what Lewinton said. He said, we have as scientists a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. We are forced by our prior adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations. Moreover, that materialism is absolute for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. A friendly relationship between the Bible and science requires good fences around both. And scientists need to understand that if you start with a non-scientific claim, (laughs) 
that there is no creator, which cannot be proven by science, you cannot use that non-scientific claim to verify all of your other research and then circle back to a conclusion that there's no purpose or meaning in the universe, that we're simply the product of time and random chance. And that's what a lot of scientists do. And it's not scientific. I mean, it is one thing when you're doing heart research to focus on natural causes. I mean, I wouldn't want to go, if I had an irregular heartbeat, I wouldn't want to go to a doctor whose first thought was that I had demonic possession because my heartbeat was irregular. I'd want him to look for some physical cause there. It's one thing to talk about researching the heart, and it's another thing to claim that all human morality can be explained because of the cooperative behavior of honeybees. They're slightly different claims. And so Christians and scientists both need to have healthy fences around their fields of expertise. Now, the last thing that I'm going to say today is that a friendly relationship between science and the Bible enriches our knowledge of both science and the Bible. A friendly relationship between science and the Bible enriches our knowledge of both science and the Bible. You see, there's some people who would agree with everything I've just said about having good fences around science and the Bible. But in their mind, these are not fences with gates. These are high and impenetrable walls, and never the two shall meet. You can have your personal beliefs about religion, and you can have your scientific understanding, but the two can never come together. And I I reject that. I think if we understand science for what it's meant to do, and we understand the Bible for what the Bible is trying to do, what God is revealing to us in the Bible, then our knowledge of both science and the Bible will be enriched. You see, as Christians, the answer to science overreaching and making non-scientific claims and, and saying that they're fact, the answer to that is not rejecting science. It's redeeming it. It's investigating it and seeing how the Bible and science can enrich our knowledge of both. For scientists, the answer to Christians overreaching with Scripture or not understanding how scientists do their job is not to reject the Bible, but it's to investigate the claims of the Bible and to understand how the Bible can inform the why and inform the origins and the meaning behind creation. The the scientists that I know uh, that are Christians tell me that their scientific uh, study deeply enriches their understanding of God, their perception of his power and his majesty. It, It increases their faith. It doesn't destroy their faith. By the way, this last point about how uh, appreciating uh, the the Bible and science and and how they can be friends, enriching our knowledge of both, that's all we're going to talk about next week. There's some amazing uh, new developments in science that that affirm the claims of of Scripture. There's some amazing things in Scripture that were stated far before any modern science that modern science is now catching up with. And it's really amazing and reveals some incredible things about our God. And and that's going to be where we go next week. But I want to close our time together by, by making sure that we understand why this is so vitally important. Why is it so important that we understand that, that the Bible and science are friends, not foes? Why, why does this matter so much? But in order to do that, we have to watch one more brief clip from Carl Sagan's Cosmos series. And then after we watch this short clip, uh, we're going to conclude our time together. I want you to think about the reality of what you just saw. That we are one planet of 100 billion in our galaxy that our galaxy is one galaxy of 100 billion galaxies. And I want you to filter it through two different lenses. 
The first lens is the lens of scientific naturalism that claims that there is no creator, that claims that everything that exists is all there ever was and all there ever will be, that everything we see is the product of time and chance and literally has no meaning. And I want you to think about how being one person of 7 billion on a planet of 100 billion planets in a galaxy of 100 billion galaxies would make you utterly insignificant, utterly indifferent about your lives or the lives of others, how it would lead you to a kind of nihilism where nothing has any meaning because my life is a speck on a speck on a speck floating in an ocean of meaninglessness. And then I want you to think about a different lens, the lens of the Christian faith, the lens of Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Think about the immensity and the power of a person who could create such a vast universe. Think about the intellect and the brilliance of somebody who could design and bring together such a creation. And then think about the reality that that God saw our little speck and saw us as a little speck on a speck. And he descended to live among us in the person of Jesus Christ. And he walked among us and he lived the perfect life that we could never live. And he died on the cross to pay the penalty for sins that we should have to pay. And he rose from the dead to offer us new life and to redeem all of creation, which had become corrupt because of human sin. And I want you to think about how belief in that creator would infuse your life with meaning and purpose. How much love is contained in a creator so powerful and so ingenious who would condescend to our level in the person of Jesus Christ, who would pay the price for sin that we should have to pay. Doesn't it make just a little bit of difference <laughs> which one we believe? This is serious stuff. This is life and death. And so I think that if we allow the Bible to do what the Bible was meant to do, and if we allow science to do what science was meant to do, I think that we'll come out with a much richer appreciation of both. Science and the Bible are friends, not foes. A friendly relationship between science and the Bible is a life and death issue for the church and for culture. Having this kind of friendly relationship is going to require that we have good fences around our understanding of both. But doing so will enrich our knowledge of science and the Bible. You've been listening to the sermon podcast of Christ Community Church. To access more messages, you can visit us online at www.christcommunityfm.com.